Don't touch that dial. You're tuned in to the Dread Podcast Network. From Nice Guy Productions World Headquarters overlooking the glamorous San Fernando Valley, I'm Mick Garris, and this is the Fun Size Postmortem AMA, where you can ask me anything. Producer Joe, you must have a bunch of great questions lined up. We have so many great questions, Mick. Actually, uh, before our- we get into the questions, I just want to say that on August 6th at Dark Delicacies in Burbank, there's going to be a big signing there. I'll be signing my books. William Malone will be there. Uh, Joshua Milliken will be there. Handful of people. So that's at Dark Delicacies in Burbank, August 6th at 3 p.m. Well, that sounds like an awesome lineup of people to go get some things signed from. So absolutely. I hope everybody will go check that out. And then I think you're also hosting a screening of the thing soon, right? Yeah, I don't know what date that is yet, but uh, that's coming up pretty soon. Well, we'll keep everybody posted. Uh, If not on AMAs, keep an eye on Nick's social medias for uh, news and updates about that. Yeah, that's uh, going to be at the Alamo Draft House downtown LA. Good, great, which is uh, which is an awesome theater. So, uh, and I guarantee they will be showing it in its correct aspect ratio. <laughs> Damn right. Ah, <laughs> uh, well, uh, well, how are you doing, Mick? What's what's what else is new in your world? Oh, everything is going well, moving along really well on this pilot script we're working on, and. Uh, so it's taking longer than I would like, but uh, they always do, don't they? They always, they always seem to. Uh, but good, I'm glad things are chugging. We just and wrapped, you? yeah. Uh, we just wrapped Soulmates, my uh, my 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 latest movie that was based on our Bloodless script. And um, uh, heartiest of congratulations to you. Thank there you. On thank movie you. number seven. Movie number seven. So uh, yeah, no, we're we're. It seems seems all really promising. Mark Gant, the director, did a really nice job. Uh, you know, all, all the footage I've seen looks, looks really exciting. So, uh, fingers and toes crossed. It all comes together in the edit. Uh, it seems like it could be a fun one. I'm optimistic. Yes, me too. Uh, all right, let's dive into some questions, which we got from our uh, fans on social media and through the new ask Mick anything at Gmail, uh, email address. Um, so you ready, Mick? Let's dive in. All right. Josh from your next favorite movie podcast asks, (laughs) what was your favorite Stephen King collaboration and why is it my favorite sleepwalkers? (laughs) (laughs) Well, um, it's, it's probably not sleepwalkers as great as that was. That was the first one. So obviously it has a big, big place in my heart and on my resume, but, um, probably would be the stand because it was so massive, so successful uh, in, in every way. It had such a huge audience. It was the first time where I really got to spend a lot of time with King, who was a producer in name as well as in fact, and was around for a lot of the production. Uh, it was a massive script. It was an experience with so many great actors, a great crew, really, really hard shoot uh, for a long, long time. But um, I would I would have to say that because on so many levels, it, it was such a good experience that it would have to be the stand. 
There you have it, Josh, from your next favorite movie podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry right. that we're not in agreement, uh, but uh, as much as I love Sleepwalkers, Stan just feels more like an accomplishment. Uh, I get it. And um, I actually will be on your next favorite movie podcast pretty soon, talking about my favorite movie, Ghostbusters. So Awesome. Uh, <laughs> All right. Donut Fist. Yes, yes. Sh shameless self-promotion. Uh, Donut, Donut Fist writes, <laughs> you've discussed the differences between your prose fiction and screenwriting, but what are the similarities? Well, the similarities are still telling stories. Um, in, in prose, it can be more intimate and more personal, but the similarities are you still have a beginning, a middle, and an end. You're still dealing with characters and trying to give them lives as rich as you can compose on uh, on a keyboard. Um, and storytelling is storytelling. The process is completely enjoyable to me uh, in both formats. Um, it's just a matter of format. And anything that's internal, you have to find external ways of expressing it in the screenplay that you don't have to worry about when you're writing fiction. When you're writing fiction, all bets are off and anything can happen. You also don't have the same commercial concerns when you're writing fiction as you're writing the screenplay, but you are still communicating with an audience. And ultimately, they are the arbiters of, of the success or failure of the work you're doing. So telling stories is telling stories. It's just a matter of format. There you have it. Uh, Mark asks... Mick and Joe, can you recall the first time you saw the Texas Chainsaw Massacre? I certainly can. Uh, I saw it in the 70s in a theater that no longer exists in North Hollywood. Awesome. And it was on a really rainy day. And it was a crappy old theater that had a leaky roof. <laughs> Even though it was a multiplex, it was a United Artists multiplex. Uh, and in the front of the theater, you know, where the slope ends in yeah. front of the screen, it was six inches of water, <laughs> rainwater. Oh, my gosh. And so I saw that movie under those circumstances, which even though it was in North Hollywood, California, it was United Artists Theater. It felt like it was 42nd Street. You know, <laughs> it felt really kind of scummy and slimy and downscale and and it was the perfect way to see it perhaps the only better way would have been on 42nd street or maybe in a drive-in theater but this way it was a shared experience and it was a magnificent experience and uh, really mind-blowing and you know i was a little afraid of that movie that title promises that anything can happen and uh it does but in in ways that are so artful unexpectedly artful and it, it really had a major impact on me. did you know going in like anything about it or or other or was there, was there buzz around it when you went in like where what was like what was the context of it i guess well there was definitely buzz around it but at that time and this is 1974 i think i probably saw it in 75 um, maybe even 76 but there was buzz there wasn't an internet, you know, publications sure. came out uh, monthly or bi-monthly that would talk about it. The Cine Fantastiques were quarterly, you know, magazines like that. Um, 
and mainstream press rarely even reviewed things like that. So it was all word of mouth sort of thing. And people would say, have you seen Texas Chainsaw Massacre? Like it's a test of your masculinity. You know? <laughs> <laughs> when you, when it, with the rain, could you hear the rain over the picture? Uh but, I didn't hear the rain pounding outside, but what I did hear was the trickling into the puddle in front. That's what <laughs> I was wondering. Yeah. yeah. Oh, wow. It, it didn't drown anything out, but it certainly added to the atmosphere. <laughs> Gosh. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I wish I had a story like that. Mine, mine's much more boring. I mean, I, uh, I didn't discover it until much later. You know, I, I, this is going to sound horribly sacrilegious, but I saw the remake first. <laughs> oh, geez. <laughs> Oh, gee. I know. I know. It's like seeing Sorcerer before Wages of Fear, which I did. And so <laughs> Sorcerer has always been my preferred version of that story. It's interesting. I, you know, I, I, you know, it's, it's funny because I feel like on, um, on Joe Bob on the last drive-in, he has this argument back and forth with Darcy, the male girl about the Texas Chainsaw remake. And I, I, I too am a fan of the remake, but I also am a fan of the original, you know, like well, I, you I, saw it first. If you had not seen the remake first, you probably would not feel the same. Yeah. Well, and also remember I was in either like late high school or freshman year of college. I can't remember which, and you know, Jessica Biel in that movie makes quite an impression uh, <laughs> on, on a teenage boy. So, uh, <laughs> all you know, right. So but, it was a hormonal experience, <laughs> probably. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, I mean, you know, it's it was so interesting because that one is so polished, uh, and then to go back and see the original, which is so raw, yeah. um, it really, and it, it is really, it's, it's a good movie, but yeah. but it's not the texas chainsaw massacre no it's it's they're they're very different experiences and and yeah. toby's is much more visceral i think definitely um, so even uh, though it's less graphic you think you're seeing a lot more than you are yes yeah exactly whereas whereas in the remake you you see a lot more than uh yeah so for sure i i but uh but i wish i could have seen it in a uh a grindhouse with a leaky roof. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right. On that line of, of Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Vince asks, and I don't know if we've ever actually like definitively gotten this out of you. What is your favorite horror movie of all time? Well, we have talked about this and people have asked that often. Yeah. And, and I just, I never prioritize movies. I don't that have way. like a top yeah. 10 list I, because it, it's a constantly shifting thing. And I, I always want to be consuming new stuff as well. And not, right. you know, uh, sometimes, sometimes it's the bride of Frankenstein just because it, it broke so much ground. Sometimes yeah. it's dead ringers because of mm. its brilliance and the acting quality and how completely original it is. Yeah. Sometimes it's an American werewolf in London or the howling who both of which have equal uh, stature to me in the werewolf movie game. And, and a part of your legacy uh, as well. Um, well, as well, but yeah. you know, it, it just shifts all the time. Uh, uh, maybe it's the exorcist or, you know, Exorcist to the heretic. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> uh, but, uh, you know, I, I, I don't prioritize in that way. And so it, it's, it's uncomfortable for me to try because, yeah. uh, you know, it's like giving awards 
like Oscars and the like, the best of one thing. Well, for some people, and in this moment, it's it just, I understand Woody Allen's attitude about the Oscars. It's the same way of ranking artistic merit in a competition. And I just I've, don't, I, it's a philosophical standpoint that I, I, I find uncomfortable. You know, I, I, I agree with you. I think it's, it's very, you know, if you love a movie, it's very hard to express why you might love one more than another, you know? Uh, right. And, and I'm, you know, but so I, I'm, I'm with you. I, I feel like, you know, when I think about uh, Halloween or the thing or alien or like any of those movies, I, I love them all kind of equally, you know? Yeah, and and it's, all it's, of those could be at the top of my right, list. Anyway. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And respectfully. So yeah. Uh, and, and respectably. So um, and dozens of others as well. Yeah, exactly. That's, that's it's a really hard, hard question. Um, but uh, speaking of, of Bess, uh, there was a little bit of a, a Twitter, uh, you know, scandal this week. Uh, and Brad wants to know, what did you think of Jordan Peele going on record this week and saying John Carpenter is the greatest horror director of all time? Well, it's not exactly what he said. Uh, but in a roundabout <laughs> in a roundabout way, when somebody asked him how it felt to be the the greatest director in horror, and he said, "I will not denigrate John Carpenter in that way." Yeah, I thought it was a great answer to a stupid question. Yes, yes. <laughs> um, it was pretty cool, though. Uh, and yeah. um, you know, I think I think like the longer the you know the horror genre grows and continues the more john's status at the top really seems to be cementing itself um but so. once again we're talking about best and there's a lot of great ones out there that's and true that's john true. is we'll just have a top tier of, is, of yeah, 50 or so tier of the, yes yeah. all right fair fair enough fair enough all right this next one's a a, a longer question so let's settle in as i uh read through it all matt right. writes so I remember a few years ago, Mick was talking about Toby Hooper's original cut of what would become his final film, Jin, saying how it was a much better film than the cut that saw official release. I believe citing the studio who funded it being the issue. Now, I won't ask for details on what made it better, but feel free to share. But does Mick know if anyone still has this cut or if there's ever going to be a way to see it? Uh, even if it's unofficially released online. I don't know of anyone who has it. Toby brought a Blu-ray over to my house to show it to me when he had completed it. And, you know, it was finished without him. Uh, and basically it was recut. It made less sense. It was shorter. It was choppier. The character development was truncated. Um, it was, it was like, an editor took it over who had never edited before. Wow. Um, and the original version, first of all, photographically, it's beautiful. It's really a great looking movie. It was a very troubled shoot, according to him. And Toby felt that his life was in danger much of the time while he was making it. Wow. Um, but Toby's son, Tony, uh, is the most likely one to, to, have those materials and i'm not sure if he does but uh, i don't know that there's much of a possibility of it being restored to toby's original vision and being released i think it's unlikely because of the uh, 
the uh, Saudi Arabian uh, government having a bit of a problem with the movie as well. So that's why Toby felt endangered. Oh man. So it's, it's it literally might be just one of those movies that's lost time. Uh, Could very well be. Well, that's, that's, that is a bummer. I would have loved to have seen uh, his unadulterated uh, vision. Yeah. And it wasn't about the violence and the like, but I think it's making movies under governmental auspices is a very difficult way to have your vision. It's hard enough to do it. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. It's hard enough to do it even through the Hollywood system. I can't imagine. For sure. (laughs) All right. Here's another one. uh, Another longer one from our uh, email. Uh, Steve writes with so many versions of films coming out on 4k and as special editions, we super fans end up buying them, uh, wanting the definitive edition of our favorites. I just upgraded to Blu-ray for Sleepwalkers after your 30th anniversary podcast. Uh, but this got me wondering, do you, as the maker, producer, writer, make any royalties from new versions and or formats of your films and television series as they're re-released? For example, as the film goes from VHS to DVD to Blu-ray to 4K, etc., or if you record a commentary or a new interview for one of them, are you paid just once and then you've completed the project and that's it? Uh, I have never been paid to do a commentary on a special edition. Uh, I do it just for the love of the movie and, and sharing the stories with people who care about it. The Writers Guild has a very standard set of residual payments that are required started with VHS. Um, There's a TV uh, residuals. There's international residuals, which is all countries lumped together. And it's an annual payment um, for all of your projects, not one at a time. Uh, It diminishes over the course of the years with each new edition. It just means that we might sell some more that haven't sold in years. So there would be small residuals that go with that. it's not like back in the old days where a couple of years after the fly two came out um, on VHS, uh, it was released on VHS a couple of years later. And I got a couple of checks for like $40,000. You don't, you don't see those that much anymore, unless it's for a hit movie now. And after all the years, the, the multiplication and subtraction uh, diminishes it substantially for example a tv residual the first time it's rerun you get half of what the scale was second time half of that and it just keeps going down and down and down i literally get checks for 12 cents sometimes wow it costs three times as much to four times as much to mail it as it does to (laughs) as the check is worth and processing and all that stuff. Yeah, I got so, one of those uh, from Troma recently uh, <laughs> for f- fourteen cents. Uh, nice. So, yeah. Well, from Troma, it's surprising that you get them. Hey, thanks, Uncle Lloyd. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. So, but do you when when they hit new formats per se, like Blu-ray or four K? Is there a um, is there is there a boost? Do you see a boost when that happens? Only because more copies will be sold. It's uh, people will buy it all over again. 
after it's run fallow for a while. But there's no formula that increases the money with every new format that comes out. It's the same formula that units sold are units sold no matter what the disc. Got it. Got it. So, you know, when you do see it, buy it because uh, that's more that's units right. sold. Um, there you have another, it. Another penny in my pocket, it's, uh, which you don't get on streaming. Right. Which is going to probably be the subject of the next Writers Guild negotiations right. going into next year. So uh, which might lead to another strike. <laughs> which <Hooray>. may well. <laughs> may well. Um, all right. More, more on that to come. Uh, Adam writes, Mick, I enjoy listening to the audio commentaries on your films, which provide a fun peek behind the curtain. Are there any of your films you still want to provide a commentary on that haven't uh, yet been done? And or would you ever consider recording and releasing commentaries for your other films, like, say, through Postmortem? Uh, I wouldn't do that. Uh, a commentary on a disc is one thing, but a self-contained commentary is is awfully self-congratulatory <laughs> and masturbatory, I think, in some ways. Um, you know, the the big ones have been done. Uh, the Stand, The Shining, Sleepwalkers have been done. Critters 2 has been done. Uh, Riding the Bullet's been done. I don't think, did we do one for Desperation? I don't remember if we did or not. Bag of Bones. I don't think we did. Um, but if somebody wants me to, if if one of the uh, producers, one of the distributors wants me to do a track, I'm happy to do one. Uh, I enjoy doing them. Uh, it's fun to revisit them, but I don't have any uh, gnawing need uh, to, to do them. So yes, we will, uh, at least not anytime soon, be doing uh, live watches on postmortem. Uh, no, we won't. But one of the fun things about doing them, and we did it with Psycho 4 as well, getting some of the cast and people involved back together to look yeah. back on it together, that's really great fun. And in the case of The Stand, we actually got Stephen King, we got some of the actors, we got the DP, we got the editor uh, as well, because there's six hours of material to fill up. But it was great to get, you know, May Chenamik and Brian Krause to do the Sleepwalkers commentaries and Q&As and stuff. Yeah. So that's another reason to do it. Reliving something that you really enjoyed uh, is, is really a good thing. Well, hopefully there will be more of that to come. Uh, our final question is a little bit of a follow-up from last week. A uh, friend of the podcast who owes me pizza, Demir, <laughs> uh had a question about our conversation about being rewritten um ah. he asks if you're really unhappy with the rewrite can you choose to take your name off of a movie and if not how are screenwriting credits determined in directing you can use a fake name if you don't want your real name on there and that's alan smithy is the go-to directing one and if you look him up on IMDb, he's made a very interesting collection of movies. <laughs> <laughs> I bet. You wonder what the through line is. Uh, <laughs> but in screenwriting, it is really up to the Writers Guild arbitration who gets credited. I suppose you could ask not to get credited. And if you do, 
and you're not credited on a movie, then you're also not entitled to residuals. Right. So that's the reason writers go to arbitration is so that if their name is on the movie, they will receive residuals from theatrical, from television, from all the other ancillary markets. So uh, because I'm sure most of our listeners are not familiar with uh, arbitration, and I know you've been through a couple. Um, <laughs> a lot. Yeah. <laughs> and, 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 and you have you've at least been, at least I know you've been asked to be an arbitrator. Have you, have you actually done it as well? Oh yeah. Yeah. yeah sure. So tell, tell us about the process. Cause I'm actually about to go through it for the first time myself. So I wouldn't mind hearing more about it from, from you too. Sure. Well, the arbitration process is every writer that has been employed by the producers to write a screenplay has the opportunity to make a bid for credit on the film. So what happens is they, the shooting script of the film is sent to all of the writers who've been engaged. And you can say, well, this is so far afield from mine. Don't even bother. Right. Or you can say, okay, here is why I should get credit. So those contested drafts are given to Writers Guild arbitrators who are Guild represented screenwriters themselves. And they are given a pile of scripts that each of the writers feels represented the work that most represent is most represented in the movie itself or in the shooting script. And so that none of their names are on them. So there's no conflict of interest. It's writer A, writer B, writer C. And the arbitrating writers members, uh, they read all of the material and they make up their minds. And I don't know how many arbitrators there are on each project, but it's usually unanimous what they feel. And then they propose what they feel the credit should be. And when you see multiple credits, if there's an ampersand between names, it means that's a writing team. Right. If it's one writer and then it says A-N-D and another writer's name, those did not work together. So those probably went through arbitration and, and that was how the arbitrators valued the, the credit. Right, right. Which is why uh, on a movie like Elvis, which just came out, Boz Lerman has multiple writing credits because the WGA determined based on various different drafts that those drafts were eligible for some form of credit. And he happened to be a solo and partnered writer on those different drafts. Right. Which is a very bizarre, one of the strangest screen credits uh, that I've ever seen. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> uh, but it used to be that you couldn't have any more than four names and two of them would have to be uh, teams. Mm. So it would only be written by so-and-so and so-and-so. -and -so. Story would be something else if there was a different writer for story. Right. But now it seems like they'll go up to six. Yeah. And so, and, and you've, you've had to, and you're, uh, I'm sure probably multiple times, do one of those uh, drafts basically petitioning why you should get credit, yes. I assume. Yes. Like what, what sort of things do you put into that? Like how, do, how does that work? Um, well, everything that shows up in the shooting script that was in your script, you want to put a red circle around and make it evident. Yeah. Whether it's a character, um, a character's traits, uh, a circumstance, 
uh, a plot point, a plot twist, a location, just every bit of minutia that you can put into it to, to plead your case that helps show that you had a tremendous amount of creative input and responsibility for what ended up in the final draft. Got it. And then that helps. Uh, and that is presented to the arbitrators um, blind again uh, to read. It comes with and, the drafts. When right. you get the drafts from the individual writers, you get to see their letter of why they should be included in the final credits. When, um, you know, having been through the, the process on, on several different projects, did you ever feel like the arbitrators got it wrong? <laughs> no, usually I've been the first writer and the first writer has a huge advantage. Yes. Because conceptually it's there. Right. Um, but there have been a couple of times where I wasn't credited that I was involved, um, but not in a way that I, I really objected to. Got it. Got it. Well, there you go. So, uh, so yeah, it's, it's, it's not like the director's guild where you can Alan Smithy it. Um, right. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, it's, it's, it's more about the, uh, the panel of your peers. Um, so there's a much more convoluted uh, answer than the question seemed to require. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> All right. Well, that's it for this week, Mick. Uh, you survived. Uh, we'll be calling out for, for more questions again soon uh, through social media. Uh, you can find Mick at Mick Garris PM on Twitter and Instagram. Uh, you can find me at Joe Russo tweets and at Joe Russo Graham. You can send your questions there or you can send them to our new email address, askmickanything at gmail.com. And thank you for all the questions. And please, you can do us a big favor by rating and reviewing the podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you, Mick. Thank you, Joe. Thanks, everybody. See you next time. Thank you for listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris. Download new episodes every Wednesday and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. Thank you for listening to the Dread Podcast Network.